Well, what a seriously good morning we're having already. I mean, how many times do you get to go to church and have one of your good friends you can celebrate with getting engaged and catch the backstory of that? That's a great thing, isn't it? It's a privilege to be together as a body. And I must say, to get to hear some serious banjo in the mix is a good thing for me. I really enjoy that and appreciate the, the effort that our band makes. And uh, they wouldn't let him off the drums. You realize he had to play the drum and play the banjo at the same time, but appreciate that work. But all of that is wrapped up in this effort, this desire, this journey we have towards worshiping God and acknowledging Him. And that is the richness of us being together today. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful. You are so good. So consistently good. You give such good gifts. I thank you for this time we have now to look into your word. And Father, I ask your forgiveness for my sin. And I pray that you would speak by your spirit, through your word, to each heart. Lord, may we uh, not just hear, but actually be stimulated to change. May we actually understand the good you have in mind for us as we walk in obedience with you. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we have been in the study of 2 Timothy, and we'll be there, so you want to either open your Bibles or get the uh, service sheet out that has that scripture passage. I'll be reading it as I go through my sermon. Uh, you know, we have three daughters and one son, and as our children were growing up, we often had these debates about which film we're going to watch. And having three daughters and one son meant we watched a lot more romantic comedies at my house than we got to watch action films. That's just the way it worked. So that's my excuse for why I'm familiar with one called While You Were Sleeping. Some of you might know that film. Famous uh, Sandra Bullock show. And of course the crisis is she's engaged to one brother and in love with another one. But uh, actually there's a subplot there that I want to kind of refer to this morning because while she's uh, loving this guy she's not engaged to, he is in business with his father. And uh, his father's business is studying the obituary and finding out who died and quickly going and making arrangements to buy the furniture from their estate so they can turn around and sell it. The problem is Jack doesn't really want to stay in that business, but he's afraid that his dad will be mad if he quits. In fact, maybe the business will just go broke. And uh, so he loves making furniture, and he's selling that on the side, and everybody's waiting for him to talk to dad to tell him, hey, I went out of this business. And from our American perspective, we kind of think, you know, no dad has a right to trap a son to do something he doesn't want to do, he should do what he wants to do. He should be free to pursue his own heart and dream. And I guess when the most important thing you do is buy dead people's furniture, you really should be free to do what you want to do. But our story, our passage today, is about Paul, who treated Timothy like a son, had a close relationship, had poured himself into it, and he had brought Timothy into his business, which in this case, what was it? Well, if we look at... Uh, Chapter 1 of 2 Timothy, verse 7 and 8, we see, For God did not give us a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of power, of love, and self-discipline. So, Timothy, do not be ashamed to testify about our Lord, or ashamed of me as prisoner, but join me, join with me in suffering for the gospel. So, Paul's business was the gospel. It was that incredible story of who Jesus was and what he did. And while Jack had to get out of the business with his dad of buying dead, dead people's furniture... Paul's business was taking a message that brought dead people back to life, that gave life. He said, Timothy, you can't quit. This is too important. This is too essential. Other people are quitting. Other people are causing trouble. He's writing from jail. 
And he'd been in jail before. He'd had a lot of trouble before. But this time he expected to die. And as he's watching these people quit and he's wondering if Timothy wants to hang in there, he's writing to say, Timothy, this critical mission must go on. God is in it. God is sovereignly at work. But we get to participate. Don't quit, Timothy. Verse 15, he said, you know that everyone in the province of Asia has deserted me. In chapter 2, he said, you know, these false teachers have come in. And they're saying things like, oh, the resurrection already happened. Did you miss it? And people were confused. And people were leaving the church because of that false teaching. And Paul said, Timothy, teach the truth of the gospel. Point people to Jesus. It's critical. And then he said, there's uh, these people that just want to argue in the church all the time. And they cause dissension. Instead of a church being a, a place where people are loving God and loving each other, they're having these quarrels. Timothy, don't just win the argument. Don't just uh, think that you're so bright that your answer is going to be better than others. Instead, with kindness and humility, work to bring these people to a place of repentance. In other words, Timothy, what the kingdom of God looks like is it's not about you and your strong leadership. It's about you holding up Christ and seeing people's life change because you bring them to Christ. That's the ministry that we have. That's why it's so important that you don't quit. Timothy, you don't just need to be right. You need to be used of God. And some people in the church had gotten so rotten. He looked at that last week when uh, Jamie filled in for me when I was sick, which I appreciate. Chapter 3, he said, you know, there's these people. They are lovers of self. That's like this uh, umbrella category of people that are so full of themselves that everything spills out from there. That's the directional pattern in their life. That's their compass. It's all about me. He says they're lovers of self, Lovers of money, lovers of pleasure. And sounds quite hedonistic, people that just live for what brings them joy and comfort. Also sounds narcissistic, doesn't it? Lovers of self. Uh, in America, we're finding that this is a category that we're moving more and more into. Psychologists who don't know Christ and don't know the gospel are saying, you know what, there's an incredible increase in narcissism. People are full of themselves. But you know what the Bible says? That's poison. You wrap yourself up in yourself. And we say, no, wait a minute, Pastor. I thought, you know, if somebody wants to do something, aren't they free to just do their own thing? Especially if they're not hurting somebody else. Can't they just love what they want? And here's what Paul said in that trajectory of what happens with people that are lovers of self. It's not just that they love themselves. They end up being proud, which means that they know they're better than other people in their own mind. And it justifies them then using other people for their own ends. They end up being abusive. They end up being treacherous, it says. And it leads all the way to brutality. Once they have it in their mind that they're the most important thing in the universe, then everybody they look at and every opportunity is, what's in it for me? What can you do for me? And that goes all the way down to the horrific things we looked at last week, human trafficking. And even, I would say, the big questions behind people debating whether women should have a choice about abortion. Hey, it's about her, isn't it? Isn't that the main thing? Isn't that the only thing? Who would ever suggest that there should be another question than what she wants? And yet God's word says, you know what? When you circle around your own experience and heart, poison happens. So all these things are going on. And, uh, and then he gets to this passage we have today, starting in verse 10. What's Timothy to do in the midst of so much challenge? Verse 10, Paul wrote, You, however, know all about my teaching... My way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, 
love, endurance, persecutions, sufferings? What kind of things happened to me in Antioch and Iconium and Lystra? The persecutions I endured. Yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. So Paul, who's writing from jail, to Timothy, who he's thinking is getting fearful, he says, all those bad things are happening, but you know me. It's like he takes him by the lapel and pulls him close. Timothy, you lived with me. You worked with me. We went on those mission trips together. You were there when some of these beatings and terrible things happened. You know me, Timothy. You know my teaching. These other guys are saying the resurrection is gone. Other people are totally selfishly coming into the church and looking to see who they can take advantage of for their own interest. He described some of those women in chapter 3. He said, but not me, Timothy. You know my life. You know my teaching. My teaching was Christ-centered and God-focused. I didn't use wise words. I didn't try to be the smartest guy in the block and the best philosopher or the most entertaining. I didn't try any of that because it wasn't about me. It was about me pointing people to the life-giving grace found in the person of Jesus Christ. That's what I did. And you know that. You teach that, Timothy. You point people to Christ. And he said, you know my way of life. While others were coming into the church and saying, hey, this looks like a pretty good way to make some money. You know, if I actually start doing what they've done, hey, can I have that blessing? Well, you can heal people? How's that work? Because I'd love to be able to do that because I would really be successful and popular and probably wealthy if I could do that. And Paul said, you know, I wouldn't even take money from many of the churches I worked with. I worked with my own hands. Timothy, you were sitting beside me when I was working on those tents because I didn't want anybody to say, well, that Paul's really in it for himself. It's really about him. He thinks he's something, doesn't he? Paul said, I wanted people to know and see Jesus. It was about him. And I would do anything to keep that gospel message pure. Timothy, you walked with me. You know that. This is an important thing that comes out. And then Paul goes into this discussion about endurance and persecutions and sufferings. And I wonder if he thinks this was really motivating to Timothy to be hearing these things. He was in jail and he was expecting to die. But he wrote in 2 Corinthians about some of these sufferings. Are they servants of Christ? He was comparing himself to others because they claimed he wasn't an apostle. He said, I'm out of my mind to talk like this. But let me tell you something. I am more. I've worked much harder. Been in prison more frequently. What funny things to brag about, huh? Been flogged more severely. Been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the sea. I have been constantly on the move. I have been in danger from rivers, dangers from bandits, dangers from my own countrymen, the Jews, dangers from the Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the country, danger in the sea, danger from these false brothers who want to cause me trouble. I have labored and toiled and often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have gone without food. I have been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. That's what Paul said. And then he said, Timothy, come join me in that. Let's do that. Right? You say, "Uh, excuse me. Um, If you want to talk about, like, comfort and security and the blessing of having a relationship with God, I might be interested in that. But if you ask me to come and endure hardship and suffering so that the gospel can be proclaimed, that's not such a welcome message. But church, you got to hear this. Paul was not a masochist. He didn't just love pain. He was not a martyr. Paul had found riches in Christ Jesus. He said, I count everything else as rubbish. Everything. Take it away. 
I want Jesus. Just give me Jesus. And so he's writing to Timothy. He said, come and join me. I'm going to trip myself here if I don't tie my shoe. If I do that, we'll get over it. He says, you know, um, Timothy, it is going to be bad. In fact, he goes on to say in this verse, in fact, everyone who wants to live a life, a godly life in Christ Jesus would persecute it. This is going to be normative. You want to follow Jesus in church, we should be honest with you. If you really want to let Jesus be Lord of your life and surrender like we sang in that song today, you've got to expect that some people aren't going to like it. Some people, even your family members, might say, no, don't, what are you doing with your money? What are you doing with your time? Why are you going to spend time with those people? And people at work, whenever you bring the biblical integrity that Christ is leading you to, to work, you might say, hey, wait a minute. No, no, we've got to do what works here. We're not so concerned about ethics. We're concerned about not going to jail. But we want to do what makes us money. And you have to say, actually, I want to be a good employee, but I want to stand for my king. And my king says, I can't be a cheat. I can't lie. I can't take those things. And so Paul said it's a normal expectation. You know what? When Jesus came, he did this miraculous amount of miracles, and he taught like no one else had taught, and most people rejected him. And now the offer is that Jesus wants to live in and through you. And he wants you to become more and more like him, loving people that aren't lovable, blessing those people that curse you. And when you do it, you think everything's going to go great. They rejected Jesus. Some of them will reject you. That's the way it is. That's the game we're invited in here. And it might sound grim, but stay tuned. So Paul wants Timothy to join him in this suffering. He says suffering is normal. But I want you to understand that Paul understood your life is directional. If Timothy was thinking of backing off, the book of Hebrews was written to a group of people that also thought about backing off because it was too much trouble to follow Jesus. The writers are saying, if you don't follow Jesus, if you don't stick with him, what do you have? What are you going to hold on to? What are you going to make much of in your life if it isn't the person and work of Jesus? And so that's kind of this directional thing. You're either becoming more and more like Christ and more and more useful to God as the hands and feet of Christ, or you're more and more giving over to the flesh and doing what you want and letting the world remind you it's actually quite normal to be self-centered and to make everything about you, you know. Go ahead. And yeah, you're a Christian. That's great. Bring that along. But bring it along while you're all about you. And Paul said, I'm telling you, you're either going towards God's kingdom or you're going away. There is no neutral ground. Well, then we get to verse 14. And Paul says, hey, you need some help here, Timothy. I've said some things that might discourage you. Let me give you some encouragement. But as for you, Timothy, verse 14, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of. Because you know those from whom you learned it and how from infancy you've known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So what about you, Timothy? What are you going to do? Well, continue on because you know the people from whom you learned these things. They were trustworthy people. One of them was Timothy's mother. Another was his grandmother. They taught him the scriptures from the time he was a little child and enriched his life because of that, which is why we have a whole children's ministry and they're opening the word of God and worshiping even as we're sitting here speaking so that children are being grounded in God's word here at Christ Church. But that was Timothy's experience. He says, you know these people's lives. And also, Paul had written, you know my life. It's like that whole thing of draw close, Timothy, and remember me. Here's a question for you. 
What kind of friends do you choose to spend time with? Who do you surround yourself with? Are there people in your life that you know they love God with a passion and you want to spend time with them because you know it will help you to grow towards obeying God and understanding God and his kingdom? Do you look around and say, who is like that? Who has that affected in my life? I want to be with them. Because that's what Timothy did. Timothy went and was with Paul. And Paul invested in his life. And I will say, I think it's great if it goes across generations like that. A younger man with an older man. A younger woman with an older woman. It's not the only way, because sometimes the more mature person might actually be chronologically young. But the idea is, grab the hand of somebody that's a step ahead of you in the journey of following Christ. And hang on. And don't let the world just be the ones that define for you what's important and valuable. Paul said, you know those of us who have poured into your life, Timothy. And then he went on to say, and you have the Holy Scriptures. Timothy, I didn't patent a way to build churches. I didn't make a franchise system and give it to you and I'm asking you to go and sell it someplace else, Timothy. God himself has spoken. And that's what we have. That's why I don't use fancy speech. I use the revelation of the living God. And he wants him to understand what gift this is. And so he describes it for him. He said, this is the scriptures that will make you wise for salvation. That doesn't mean that you study them long enough to pass a quiz and you get into heaven, right? What it means to be wise for salvation is to be led to place your faith in Jesus Christ. Totally and alone. And that's what the scriptures do for us. And then he says, these scriptures are God-breathed. Which means, even though men wrote them like Paul and Moses and others... God was behind and under and surrounding that process so that the words we have coming through their personalities and their experiences are totally shaped and trustworthy to us as the very word of God. And that's why it's so relevant for us 2,000 years after the last page was written because God breathed this stuff. And we could have, we probably should have a few messages about that subject, but I want to get you to think about this God-breathed aspect in a little different way this morning. As Jamie shared in his prayer When God took the dust and formed Adam, it was just dust. It was just chemicals. And then he breathed life into that. And it became a living soul and a living person. And you know what? God's word, because of his spirit and his intention and his sovereign work, is intended to breathe life into your soul. I don't know how many of you feel a little dead lately, a little flat, like the things you're pursuing are not satisfying. You're spinning and spinning, and you think, okay, that didn't work. I'll get on another plate and spin and spin. But God wants to say, I want to tell you which way to go. I want to tell you how life really works. I want to tell you about me. I want to tell you about you. I want to explain the world to you. I want to give you this life-giving input from my word. And that's the breath of life coming into us through God's word by his spirit. It is God-breathed. Well, then Paul, a master of understatement, says, all scripture is useful. What do you think about that? All scripture is useful. This makes me think Paul was an Englishman, actually, because when I lived in England, they were masters of understatement. They loved to really lowball things. They would have had some coy way of announcing this engagement today, and everybody would have heard it, and it would have been five or ten minutes later when it dawned on people what they just said. They loved that. And Paul is kind of saying that here a little bit. You know, all scripture is useful, Really, Paul, what do you mean? How useful is it? He says, well, it's useful for teaching. For one thing, you get so many messages, hundreds a day, about what is true and important and what to value and what your identity should be built on. 
He says, God's word explains the truth of those things to you. It is good for teaching, for thinking rightfully about God and yourself. And then he says, it's good for rebuking and correcting. Now, many of us say, no, wait a minute. I, I want the parts that are like comforting and encouraging and take me to a place where I'm kind of happy. Give me that part of the scripture. I don't really want to sign up for the part where I get rebuked and where I get corrected and I got to acknowledge that I'm going the wrong direction and turn and go the other direction. I'm not so interested in that. But God's word, because God loves you, he doesn't want to leave you where you are. Do you know God has a deep commitment that a year from now you won't be the same person you are today? He wants to bring correction and growth and maturity into your life through his word and by his spirit and through our fellowship together. That's a good thing. But it takes some rebuke. I had a friend. I was the best man in his wedding. Had a couple of kids. His third daughter was born. And within months, he was uh, announcing he wanted to leave his wife and marry this woman he had an affair with at work. I was pretty crushed. But I felt convicted. I needed to go and talk to this guy. And I traveled from Tennessee up to Pennsylvania to meet with him. And we sat down and I explained God's plan for him. And how really this wasn't what God's plan was. And he was like this. He didn't want to hear it. He didn't want to hear a rebuke. He said, wait, I've got my plans. My plans are I'm going to divorce this woman and marry this woman. And I don't know what we're going to do about the kids. And I'm not sure what my family's going to think. And I'm not sure it's going to work out. But I'm going to get through this. And it's kind of dark and cloudy. But some years later, I'm going to turn back to God then. When I get through all this. And I said, man, don't you understand that this rebuke God's giving you today is an invitation to live. It's an invitation to hold on to the best things. Not to settle for the stuff you're going to have to deal with if you go down the path you're going down. And so that was the word. He did not take that. And many of us don't. Many of us will not allow God's word to rebuke us. You've got to understand it's the love of Christ at work when he tells you you're holding on to the wrong things in the wrong way. And it's going to lead to no good. Have done with lesser things. So it's good for rebuking. It's good for training in righteousness. And ultimately... It's good for equipping us for good work. And that's an important thing for us to understand. We don't just come to church. We don't just come to the Word to get the right answers to the trivial questions so we can think right about God and ourselves. And we don't just do it as a uh, kind of a warm, fuzzy, I want to know how much God loves me and it makes me feel better so I can go through life a little encouraged. That's not just it either. It does renew our minds. It does address the deepest issues of our hearts. But it's supposed to change how we behave. All this being in God's word is supposed to make us be different people. Not hating our enemies like everybody else does, but loving our enemies. Loving those who do something against us. Not thinking about ourselves, but thinking about Christ and others. That total transformation is what Paul said. So I just want to look at a couple of samples from 1 and 2 Timothy. These are just things of wisdom. Paul basically says, hey, you know what? This is useful. Try this on for size. i got a question for you. Do you think, and this might be particularly for young people, but I've come to understand this goes way past 60, so it doesn't count anymore, but do you think you should be a flirt? Do you think it's profitable to be a flirt? Because in chapter 5, verse 1, Paul gives this amazing advice to Timothy, a young man, how to handle this area of his life. He says, you know what? You should treat older women as mothers and younger women as sisters. Well, that's not exactly how flirting goes. Have you noticed? So when you're watching those Super Bowl ads next week, and they're showing how people relate, and they're telling you what it's going to mean for your relationships to be positive and something that gives you some kind of blessing, 
And they're telling you to be big flirts and to come on with everybody you can and see how far it goes with as many people as you can. Then you say, what does God say about that? God says, if you want rich living in relationships where there's security and the community can be strong and not at fear of one another, you've got to put the flirting away. We should do a men's retreat and just look at this passage. And women, you should do one as well. Here's the next question. Is this helpful? Should you be buff? And then how many hours should you spend at the gym? Okay, again, you just watch a little television, you get some ideas, don't you? About what it takes to be somebody who people should take seriously and be impressed by. And it means you better be buff. Sorry about that. Because it doesn't work for all of us, does it? And some of us have a long way to go from where we're starting. <laughs> which is not so helpful, not so encouraging. But if you keep watching those commercials, all you can do is wring your hands and say, what, woe is me, I am undone. <laughs> Pass the Oreos, right? But what does God say? God says physical training has some value. It's not totally useless, but it's limited because it only affects your body, which is going to die anyway. Did you know that? Physical, value has some, physical training has some value, while godliness has value for all things. Okay, another retreat. We need to talk about this. Why should we not do so much worrying about our bodies, though we should take care of them as stewards, while we should really worry about what's it take to be godly? How do you get stronger at that? Can we talk about that? And then, let's ask this question. Should you make money the main aim of your life? Watch some commercials for the next two weeks and see what answer you get about that question. Because obviously, if you could buy the right things and have the right things, you'd be a player. You'd be somebody. That's what the world says, don't they? And most of us don't have quite enough. It's just the way it seems to work. Well, basically, there were people in Paul's day who were using the church even as a way to get money. God forbid, I know how true this is. That's one of the dangers of being a pastor who's paid. We can get so mixed up and screw up things about money in church even. But in the world, I know you're getting that message over and over and over again. And Paul said in chapter 6, verse 6 through 9, you know what? Godliness with contentment is great gain. But those who want to fall into getting rich, they fall into all kinds of temptations and traps. We could do another retreat, couldn't we? Are you wired to just want money? Is that what your family's told you and your schools have told you and every advertisement you see tells you? God says, hey, Paul would say, I got some instructions for you. I have a better way to do life. Listen to my word. Listen to what God has said and should say. How about another course? Should we take a course on aggressive behavior? It's quite American, actually, to be bold and, you know, you just stick it at a ticket counter and watch people come up when a flight's delayed. They all seem to have had the course on aggressive behavior. You go up there and give them some grief. Make sure they give you a room and give you money back as well as giving you another flight. You know, who wants that job anymore if having to address those customers? But Paul said, instead of being aggressive and argumentative and a whiner and somebody who gets in everybody's face, try being gentle and kind. And hoping that you can actually change the heart of the person you're dealing with. Instead of just get your way. Try that on for size. And lastly, what about this pro-life business? Does the book have anything to say about that? You have to understand, from the beginning, we were made in the image of God. Every one of us a valuable creature to God. And he has a lot to say about children. God loves children. He has a lot to say about people that are powerless and can't help themselves, can't defend themselves. He has a desire that we would have a burdened heart like his heart is burdened for justice for the unborn. Justice for those who are in the foster care system. 
and struggling with all that that means and all that happens to those kids. It should motivate our hearts to say, God, how do we be your hands and feet? Because you say, you know what, we better pay attention to these things. And actually, it's not, again, a road to martyrdom. Oh, what can I give up? I'll show how spiritual I am. I'll do the hard thing. No, basically, God is saying, join me in building my kingdom. And your life will never be better. You'll never know more riches. You'll never know more blessing than when you are serving me. You will be persecuted. It'll be hard sometimes. I'm not saying you'll be comfortable. But I'm saying once you tap into the things that are part of God's kingdom with God's people, empowered by the Spirit of God, it doesn't get any better. And so, yeah, it's true, isn't it? That's the way God is. God is good all the time. We say that, don't we? And it's true. Well, I just want to close this with uh, saying this scripture business, which Paul, tongue-in-cheek, says is useful. I just pray that you guys will realize what a gift it is. No cliches. That you will say, God, speak to me from your word. Feed me from your word. Give me a heart for your word that I can be changed. And uh, Eugene Peterson wrote a book called The Message, which is actually a translation of the Bible, he would say. Some people think it's more a paraphrase because it's so different. But it's just pretty uh, easy reading Bible. But he writ- he's written another book, and it's called Eat This Book. And in that, he talks about what it takes for just ordinary Christians that can't go to seminary to get hold of God's word and to let it become part of your life and your heart. And my encouragement to you, church, is let's eat this book. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you so much for the wonderful gifts you give, amazing gifts. Um, And your word is a big one, which points us to Christ, the biggest gift of all. And Father, I thank you that you invite us into this rich living in Christ Jesus by your word. I thank you that at this church we are free to teach your word and uh, have a practice and a habit and a past of teaching your word. May it be true of our future as well. And I pray for each individual here, Lord, that this morning you would grip their hearts about all the noise and the stuff that confuses them and draw them back to yourself through your word. Just ask in Jesus' name. Amen.